You know, history is full of stories of people with painful memories who find themselves in a position of power over the people who caused their pain. One amazing example of something like this would be from the end of apartheid in South Africa when Nelson Mandela found himself going from a prison cell to the presidential palace. And instead of seeking vengeance, he helped create the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He, he helped to bring justice and peace to a situation that was devoid of and greatly in need of both of those. Though not perfect, this is an example of a gracious outcome when payback might have been the easy choice. Unfortunately, we know that's not necessarily the norm. More common is the storyline that ends in vengeance, that ends in retribution. Whether on a national level or on a personal level, our knee-jerk reactions as humans is to use whatever power that might be given to us to bring some sort of payback to those who have hurt us. I see it in my own life. I'm not saying that I respond with violence toward people who have hurt me, but I certainly can't claim to be a stranger to the desire for some sort of tit-for-tat for some sort of payback. You know what? You do it too. I know you do because most of you drive cars. And what is it about getting behind a wheel that can bring out some of the basest parts of our nature? You know what I'm talking about. You're going down 210, minding your own business, cruise control's on, a couple miles per hour over the speed limit, but not too many. And somebody pulls out in front of you. Not so fat much that you have to slam on the brakes, but enough that you got to tap it and you're not on cruise control anymore. And your first thought, of course, is, what a gracious and lovely person. I'm sure that they just have some place very important to get to, and I am happy to make way for them to allow them to go in front of me. Oh, that's, that's not your first thought either? Yeah, what do we think instead? You jerk. Who do you think you are? Mario Andretti on the way to the hospital? Come on, I'm driving my car here. Get out of my way, right? And then if the fates should align such that a mile or two down the road, they need to get over into our lane so that they can get to Costco or wherever they're going, what do we do? We speed up, we slow down, we stay right in their way just enough to box them out. And maybe we give them a little glare, maybe we don't. Maybe we just play full-on Minnesota passive-aggressive, pretend that we don't even see them while out of the corner of our eye, keeping them right in the right spot where we don't let them in since they cut us off. Yeah, we like payback. Maybe for you it's not really in the car that this comes out. Maybe it's the checkout line. Maybe it's the break room, fridge at work. Kids, maybe it's when your brother took that cookie that you had your eye on. So you eat the popsicle that he really wanted because it's the last one in the box. And you wanted the cookie. Maybe that happens not just for the kids. Whatever it is, so often, when some type of painful memory in our life is met with a position of some level of power, there's a temptation 
to seek payback. As simple as a popsicle or as serious as an execution, the brokenness of our hearts and the sin in our lives bends us away from forgiveness toward revenge. And when we do this, when we take matters into our own hands and we pronounce judgment and we bring punishment, it is not a simple matter of getting even. Instead, what we are doing in actuality is we are reaching for God's throne and we are attempting to put ourselves in His place. This is a cosmic action that occurs when we seek revenge for wrong. The eternal consequences of it are always disastrous. Instead, when payback is tempting, God's good plan for us is to stay in our place. Joseph demonstrates this in the chapter we're looking at this morning in Genesis 50 when his own painful memories intersect with this position of power that he's in. Let's go ahead and read about it. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days. For that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father's father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household, and, all, and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abram had, sought at, had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. 
When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to him, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry up my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and they embalmed him. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. God, this passage is so rich with your truth. And we remember this morning that we are inadequate to the task of rightly understanding it apart from your aid. So will you quicken our minds this morning that we might understand more of who you are? Will you send your spirit to be at work in our hearts so that we can not only understand who you are, but that we can rightly feel awed again at your greatness? Will you show us our right response to your word this morning as individuals and as a congregation? And will you strengthen us by your power that we might act according to your will? Amen. This really is an amazing chapter of Scripture with a lot going on in it. It's not only wrapping up the story of Joseph, it's bringing to a conclusion the book of Genesis as a whole. It's the end of the beginning of the Bible. It alludes back not only to the earliest stages of God's identification of and dealing with his own people, the Israelites, but even before that to the story of creation of humanity and our fall into sin. And while it's doing that, it also sets the stage for God's future deliverance of his people from Egypt in Exodus and looks beyond that to God's deliverance ultimately of his people by sending his son, Jesus Christ. All that to say there's a lot going on in this last chapter of Genesis. It begins with uh, the back half of Jacob's death. And you know that we've been looking at Jacob's death for the last number of weeks. It's a death scene that's really stretched out in Scripture. Of course, after somebody dies, they have to be buried. And this means that Joseph and his brothers need to take a trip. Jacob, of course, dies in Egypt. But that's not where he's from. It's not the land that God promised to him and his fathers. And it's not where he wants to be buried. So before he dies, he makes, his son, he makes his son's promise that at his death, they won't bury him in Egypt, but instead will take him back to the, his home, to take him back 
and bury him in Canaan. And this poses a problem. Remember that Joseph is kind of a big deal in Egypt. And, and this isn't simply a weekend flight back for a funeral. This is a journey of hundreds of miles undertaken on foot. He's going to be gone for a while. And on top of that, though Joseph is in this position of authority in Egypt, his brothers and his family are there as guests. And even Joseph, when we remember back, he didn't come to Egypt in this position of authority. He came to Egypt as a slave. So leaving the land means that he would have the opportunity to never come back to Egypt. And since Joseph is in charge of this whole famine relief program that Pharaoh has going on, and that's pretty critical, uh, that just wouldn't be an acceptable situation for Pharaoh and the country of Egypt as a whole. Joseph knows this. He understands some of this backstory. So when he asks for some bereavement time from his boss, Pharaoh, he does so in the most referential way possible. In verse 4, we see that Joseph doesn't go to Pharaoh directly. We can certainly guess that he would have had the, uh, the opportunity to. He was Pharaoh's second in command. I'm guessing he could talk to Pharaoh when he wanted to. But instead of going right into Pharaoh's court, he sends some of Pharaoh's uh, other officials and has them ask for him. And in verse 5, he adds, as he's sending his request, he, he specifically says, let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Joseph gets that this is a touchy situation. And we can see that Pharaoh uh, takes into account both the significance of Jacob's passing and the necessity of, jo of Joseph following through on the promise he made, and also the potential negative consequences of Joseph never coming back and leaving Pharaoh and the Egyptians high and dry. We see this in Pharaoh's response because Joseph and his family don't go back to Egypt alone. Instead, they go with all of Pharaoh's officials, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt we see in verse 7. Certainly part of this is to show honor to Jacob, the fallen patriarch, but part of it too is to make sure that Joseph and his brothers aren't going up to Egypt alone. You add to that that not all of Jacob's descendants make the trek, but Scripture specifically tells us that the children are kept back. Certainly it's at least a little bit of conjecture, but it seems like that may not have been totally their choice. And the company of horsemen and chariots that go up with them, again, some conjecture, but it seems quite reasonable to understand this as a company that is partially bodyguards and partially prison guards. Yes, they're there to make sure that Joseph and the family can get safely to Canaan, but they're also there to make sure that once they get to Canaan, they come back to Egypt. So as Joseph and his brothers are leaving this land that is not their home, there's no doubt that they will again be returning to it shortly. 
And of course, this idea of trekking back and forth from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan is something that we see elsewhere in Scripture. This is no small event. This is no small thing. Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, right after he first receives the promise from God that God will make him into a great nation, Abram has to go down to Egypt. Why? Because there's a famine. And he needs relief. He needs escape from the famine. Jacob and all of his children, of course, wind up in Egypt. Why? Because, again, there is a famine. They're in danger. And when we fast forward to the New Testament, what do we see Mary, Joseph, and Jesus needing to do? They escape to Egypt because they're in danger. So this path back and forth between Egypt and the promised land is a reminder here, even in Genesis chapter 50, that there is more going on than just a funeral. God's plan is being enacted. His story is at work. We see this connection too when they get to the burial site, this field of Machpelah near Mamre. This is home for the patriarchs. This is the center of where God's people had experienced his promises. It's where Abram is living in Genesis chapter 15 when God promises him a son. It's it's that same promise uh, where God says that his descendants, that Abram's descendants, will be as numerous as stars in the sky. And after that, God says those descendants will be enslaved and mistreated in a land not their own for 400 years. So I wonder what's going through Joseph's and his brother's minds as they stand on this plot of land where they are burying their dad and their grandpa and their great-grandpa is buried. And they realize that this field is in many ways the focal point of God's promise to their people. I wonder if they realized when they turned around and started heading back south down to Egypt that they would be the last of their kin to see their homeland for 400 years. So there's much more than a funeral. With all the pomp and circumstance begetting the father, uh, uh, (laughs) I did that first service too, with all the pomp and circumstance befitting the father of an important official. God is working his plan here. He's reminding us of the connections to his story running throughout Scripture. And and he's doing that in ways that Joseph and his brothers may have realized, they may not have realized, they certainly didn't fully understand them. But the way this plan is unfolding, something else happens. When they get back to Egypt, Joseph finds himself in a position of power over his brothers who have caused him great pain. We see in verse 15 that his brothers aren't naive to this fact. They know enough to know that it's at least possible that dad's presence was the only restraint keeping Joseph from seeking his revenge for the harm that they had caused him. Jacob was the patriarch of the family, and though he was old and would have been pretty physically infirm before his death, he still wielded tremendous influence over what would have happened in his family. And after his death, 
that position of authority would have essentially fallen to Joseph. Though he wasn't the firstborn, everybody knew he was the favorite. And he clearly had held enormous political power over not only the family, but over all of Egypt as well. So the brothers know that their plan for Joseph years ago was to bring him harm, was to hurt him. They know that they succeeded, that they caused him great pain, and they realize that now he has total authority over them. And any protection that they enjoyed from dad is gone. They're smart enough to know that payback would have been tempting. And as he has throughout, Joseph responds nobly to this situation. In this case, he responds by remembering and acting on the fact that God is the hero of this story. He remembers God's place and Joseph remembers his place. When Joseph is in this position of power, when payback would have been possible, when it would have been tempting, Joseph remembers that he's not God. In verse 16, we see just as Joseph did, the brothers don't approach, as Joseph did with Pharaoh, so the brothers do with Joseph. They don't approach him directly. They send word to him through an intermediary. And they make their request for forgiveness through somebody else so as to show maximum deference. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a second, forgiveness between Joseph and the brothers. Haven't we already dealt with that? Wasn't that back in chapter 45? Weren't weren't we there with the whole Benjamin silver cup incident and Joseph revealing himself? So what's going on here? Why, Why do we need to hit this again? You're right. Forgiveness was addressed in chapter 45, but we have here a reminder that forgiveness is often not just a singular event, but an ongoing process. And we have a reminder, too, that forgiveness, releasing somebody who has caused us pain from uh, any sort of punishment for that pain, that act of forgiveness is different from reconciliation, where a relationship can be fully restored. It's illustrated clearly when we look back to chapter 45 and we see that Joseph's brothers are terrified and they weren't able to answer him. As Joseph extends initial forgiveness, his brothers are speechless. And here in chapter 50, when the process is completed and when reconciliation comes to completion, It's his brothers who are initiating the dialogue. It's his brothers who open their mouths and speak first. They say, we were wrong. We sinned. We treated you badly. They acknowledge their actions. And then they hear of Joseph's favorable response to the message that they sent. And they enter into his presence and they throw themselves at his feet. And then we see what Joseph is really made of. He asks a simple but profoundly, uh, but profound and, and deeply significant rhetorical question. He says, am I in the place of God? The importance of this question and Joseph's consistent 
refusal to put himself in God's place. Joseph's refusal to reach out and take hold of those things which may be within his grasp but are not within his rights can hardly be overstated. As Joseph expresses his resolve not to harm his brothers, as he instead comforts them and commits to providing for them and their children, Joseph is choosing his place over revenge. He's living into God's good plan for him. Let's take some time to dwell on this question this morning. Let's think about some of its implications for us. Am I in the place of God? As we do so, I encourage you to think through some situations in your own life. Maybe from this last week, maybe from years gone by, maybe from a long time ago. Think through situations in your own life and simply ask, am I in the place of God? What is God's role in this? And what is mine? You know, there are many attributes of God which are rightly reserved for Him and kept from us. He's all-knowing. He has all the facts. He has perfect understanding of them. We don't. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. We're not. He's never overwhelmed. He never grows weary. He never gets confused. He never needs a nap. (laughs) That is far from true for us. At an intellectual level, we get this. We get that we're not God. But so often at a heart level, don't we find ourselves grasping again for those things that are His? Let's zoom in on one aspect, one thing that we tend to grasp for that's His and not ours. And that's this aspect of payback. Let's zoom in on that this morning. In asking the question, am I in the place of God? Joseph is saying that he will not seek vengeance over his brothers. Though they admitted and though he knows that they purposed to harm him, that that was their goal, their intent, he refuses to mete out punishment to them. We see time and time again that this act, that bringing vengeance and handing down punishment is reserved for God alone. Now, I want to just add two quick caveats to this. First, I know that this can be very hard. Forgiveness isn't easy. Some in this room, some of you joining us online, have experienced enormous pain. And forgiveness then becomes a God-sized task. Second caveat, I'm not saying that we should abolish the courts. No, it's right for those whom God has put in positions of civic authority to use that authority to enact consequences for wrongdoing. And it's also right if you're wronged in such a way that somebody has broken the law, that they experience the legal consequences for that wrong. I'm not saying that refusing to seek punishment or vengeance means that we wouldn't press charges and let the civil authorities do their job. That's a job that God has put them in place to do. But what I am saying is that we 
must always remember that an individual level, at a personal level, Scripture is clear that repaying someone for the evil that they have done is God's place, not ours. We see it first in Deuteronomy, and it's quoted in Romans and in Hebrews. God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Handing down punishment is something that he clearly reserves for himself. And just as Joseph demonstrates, if we are to follow him when we are wrong, we must remember our place in His good plan. We must remember that it is our place to choose to love our enemies and forgive those who have caused us pain. In Romans 12, Paul quotes back from Deuteronomy and he expands on it and he sends this, says this. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, be, not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Joseph does exactly this. Right down to providing for his brothers. As he's speaking to them, he promises, I will provide for you and your children. When you're hungry, I'll feed you. When you're thirsty, I'll give you drink. In a culture that we live in today, so marked by division where we increasingly are willing to separate us from them over not only things like our political views or our religious beliefs or our socioeconomic status, but over any trivial thing, where it seems that we are almost inventing things to create divisions over and to pronounce judgments on, where we are so quick to speak unkindly to those who would differ from us, and about those who would differ from us. We do well to ask, am I in the place of God? Are we willing to refrain from, from punishing people who have hurt us? Are we willing to refrain from punish, punishing people who simply think differently than us? Even if that punishment only happens in our own minds, as we label them as uninformed or idiotic. God, forgive me. For times I have answered the question, am I in the place of God? With a defiant yes. Yes, I am. Forgive us for when we have condemned our brothers and sisters rather than loving them, rather than forgiving them. 
forgive me when I have sought to repay harm done to me. Whether in simple disagreement or in malicious action with punishment rather than grace. You see, when this is my response, when I respond to the question of, am I in the place of God with that defiant, grasping yes, and I take his role of punishment into my hands, I'm enacting the same scene that played out when sin entered the world and death and brokenness along with it. I'm falling into that same trap that has ensnared humanity from the beginning. And in fact, I'm forfeiting that which God has created me for. You see, this isn't the first time in the book of Genesis that somebody has had to deal with the question of, am I in the place of God? And the amazing thing is that when we look back at the beginning of Genesis in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we see that we are created to be like God. Not in his place, certainly, but we are created in his image. We are created in his likeness. So in very real ways, we are created to be like him, but like him with limits. And God's initial limits on that are don't eat from this tree. You're created to be like me, but don't touch this one. Don't eat from this one tree. And what happens? Satan comes in in the form of a certain serpent. Satan, the one who long ago decided that he was going to reach out. He was going to grasp for God's throne when it wasn't him. And in so doing, destroyed himself. So in chapter 3, Satan comes in the form of a serpent. And he says to Eve, hey, I know God put limits on it, but why don't you reach out and break those limits and you'll be like God. In some ways, you'll be in his place. And unlike Joseph, Adam and Eve do not stay in their place. Instead, they reach out and they take the fruit forbidden to them. They reach out and they try to put themselves in God's place. And in so doing, they introduce sin, pain, and death into the created order when it was not, when it should not have been there. And this pattern is repeated again and again and again and again. Throughout Genesis throughout all of Scripture, into our own day, into our own lives. Time and time again, we try to make the answer to the question, am I in the place of God? A defiant yes. And whenever we do, we bring pain on ourselves and on others. But the amazing thing is, Though Genesis begins with a story of humanity trying to put themselves in God's place, Genesis ends with a story of a human refusing to put himself in God's place. Joseph passes the test. When he's confronted with the same challenge that has faced humanity ever since the garden, when he's confronted with the same challenge that we face in our own lives today, instead of rising up against God, he embraces God's good plan. And in so doing, he gets to play this amazing role in the unfolding of that plan. 
for God's people and for all of humanity. We see this in the very end of the story. Joseph is getting ready to die, and what does he do? He elicits the same promise that his father Jacob got from his kids. He says, hey, look, don't let Egypt be my final resting place. Don't let it end here for me. I know that we're going to be in Egypt for a while, but I know this. Egypt isn't the end of the story for God's people. Slavery and mistreatment isn't all God has for us in the future. God will visit us. And when God visits us, we will again leave Egypt and we will go back to the promised land, not childless this time, not under guard, but fully free and leaving nothing behind. And Joseph gives instructions that his bones should not be left behind either. Joseph knows that he isn't the end of God's plan, but in reality, the part that he is playing is just the beginning of what God will do. And he also points to what God ultimately will do in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ. Joseph leads the way in not trying to grasp onto equality with God. And this understanding that Joseph has of what his place is, this acceptance of God's good plan for him, is perfectly modeled by Jesus. Do you hear perhaps the echoes here? of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes about Jesus and he says, though he is in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. How beautifully ironic it is that somehow in God's economy, we are actually most like him when we remember that we are not him and we act accordingly. I've been blessed by receiving the women's ministry emails. I know it's weird that I get the women's ministry emails, but the devotions especially that have been in there and some from Roxanne Sibius are just talking about forgiveness and speaking about forgiveness obviously from a place of um, God's word and from her own experience, has been a blessing. And she shared this quote from Robert Morgan, who said, we are most like Jesus when we forgive. Joseph, in answering the question, am I in the place of God? No. In forgiving his brothers, in providing for them, in speaking kindly to them, Joseph shows us what it's like to be like Jesus. Isn't it easier, even if only in our own minds, to choose payback rather than staying in our place? God, help us not to do that. God, we come to you this morning acknowledging how easy it is to seek payback, how hard it can be to stay in our place. God, would you help me to ask the question, am I in the place of God before I act, before I judge? 
Thank you, God, that when I do grasp for that which is not mine, when I try to take your place, thank you, God, that you forgive. And thank you for empowering us to forgive as well. Thank you, God, that when we do that, somehow you graciously allow us to be a part of your good plan. Truly, God, you are the hero of this story. You are the hero of all of our stories. You are great. And our right response is to simply pour out our praise to you as we stay in our place and allow you to be in yours. Enable us to do so, we pray, God. Amen.